Good morning and welcome to our live broadcast at First Presbyterian Church. It is a joy to come into your home today with good news about God who loves you. We are located in beautiful Uptown Columbus on the corner of 11th and 1st. We would love for you to join us for worship or just stop by and say hello. At First Presbyterian Church, we welcome you with grace and gratitude for God's love. Good morning. My name is Joel Alvis, and I feel a lot like uh, those of you who were just recognized in the fourth grade. Um, this is the first time that I've been here with you, and uh, it, I'm glad to be here. I am, I've been privileged to be called by your session to be the interim pastor with you during this time. And uh, first of all, I want to thank you for the welcome that has been extended to me. Um, Thank you for wearing your name tags. Please keep doing that for a while. Um, thank you for all the, the ways you have spoken to me, the cards, the emails, the phone calls, and the times you've taken me out to eat. That's been wonderful. I really do appreciate that. Um, I, I want to emphasize two things about being an interim pastor. First of all, I'm a pastor, and that's the the, the a very important thing and should not be lost in this, uh, in this transition. Um, of course, Jones is one of your pastors as well, but I come alongside of him to, to partner with him. We have our different responsibilities and in areas of focus, but like Jones, I am available for you to call. To, I will visit in the hospitals. I will uh, meet with you in times of difficulty and celebration as well. And I am here to be um, a pastor for you. That is one of the, it's an important part of this role. The other part is the interim piece, the transitional piece from moving from one installed pastor to another. And so I am here with you for that duration. It is a time uh, when we will be t talking together about the, the future of the church, the plans for the church, the directions, and we'll do that over time. It's not something that happens by next week. It, there will be a little bit of time that's with this, but I will be with you to be your pastor in this time of transition, and I thank you very much for that. I am accompanied in my, in my life um, by my wife, Vicki, who is here this morning. She's a, an eighth grade Spanish teacher in uh, uh, Fulton County, and we have two boys, <clears throat> Jody, who uh, lives in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, and, and uh, Mark, who is in, uh, lives in Atlanta. Mark works for a, a bank in Atlanta and is engaged to Emily, and they will be married next, <clears throat> next April, excuse me. Um, Emily has a little dog named Simon that's been new to our household. I, uh, Vicki and I have another dog named Mr. Darcy, and he is a, um, he's a golden retriever, and he's a good sermon illustration. So you may hear about him from time to time, and you also may even be, meet him from, a, from time to time here. I am glad to be here to be worshiping with you today. Uh, let us give thanks to God for that. Our first lesson is from Psalm 62. I invite those who are able to please stand out of respect for God's Word. And listen now to the Word of God. For God alone my soul waits in silence 
From him comes my salvation. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall never be shaken. How long will you assail a person? Will you batter your victim, all of you, as you would a leaning wall, a tottering fence? Their only plan is to bring down a person of prominence. And they take pleasure in falsehood. They bless with their mouths, but inwardly they curse. For God alone my soul waits in silence, for my hope is from Him. He alone is my rock and my salvation, my fortress I shall not be shaken. O God rests my deliverance and my honor, my mighty rock, my refuge is is in God. Trust in Him at all times, O people. Pour out your heart before Him. God is a refuge for us. Those of low estate are but a breath, and those of high estate are a delusion. In the balances they go up, they are together lighter than a breath. Put no confidence in extortion, and set no vain hopes on robbery. If riches increase, do not set your heart on them. Once God has spoken, and twice have I heard this, that power belongs to God, and steadfast love belongs to you, O Lord, for you repay to all according to their work. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please be seated. We're turning to a book from Paul to the Second Corinthians for our text this morning from the New Testament. Would you listen as I read from 2 Corinthians 4, verses 1 and 2, and verses 13 and 18. Therefore, since it is by God's mercy that we are engaged in this ministry, we do not lose heart. We have renounced the shameful things that one hides, refused to practice cunning or to falsify God's word, but by the open statement of the truth, we commend ourselves to the conscience of everyone in the sight of God. But just as we have the same spirit of faith that is in accordance with the Scripture, I believed and so I spoke, we also believe and so we speak, because we know that the one who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us up also along with Jesus and will bring you into His very presence. Yes, everything is for your sake, so that grace, as it extends to more and more people, may increase thanksgiving to the glory of God. So we do not lose heart. Even though the outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory beyond all measure. Because we look not at what can be seen, but at what cannot be seen. For what can be seen is temporary, but that which cannot be seen is eternal. The Word of God for the people of God. I am grateful to be with you this day here at the First Presbyterian Church of Columbus, Georgia. Uh, And I'm grateful to be here with Joel. Uh, We have enjoyed getting to know one another, and I look forward to his being your interim in the days and the weeks and the months ahead. Uh, My wife Judy is here, and I hope that you will greet her and meet her. She is the Presbyterian in our family. preordained that I meet her at Mercer and uh, that her daddy and all of her family are Presbyterians and so I have about a ha- our children are half and half Presbyterian and something else uh, 
but uh, I, we celebrated 47 years of marriage this week. I don't know how she did it. It's a miracle. My question for you this morning is when and how did the pound sign or the number sign become a hashtag? When did the pound sign become a hashtag? Now, some of you know the answer to that. I know some of you could care less about a hashtag. I don't even know what a hashtag is. But the, 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 here's the deal. Technically, that symbol, which we all know, it's called an octothorpe. Now, all of you knew that. Right? Well, maybe one of you. Octothorpe. It's got eight points, you know, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Hashtag. Look at your phone. You can see what a hashtag is. For most of you, it's that pound sign that you have. Due to the widespread use of the term hashtag, the Oxford English Dictionary added this to their list of words last year, thanks in large part to Twitter. So all of you, hashtag is going to be what you think about from now on. You're not going to think about the pound sign or the number sign that some of the rest of us. The world is moving forward at warp speed, and the hashtag is but one example of that. The world seemed a little bit slower when I was growing up in A. King's grocery store down in southwest Georgia. My dad came back from World War II, decided to purchase a grocery store that had Amoco gas pumps out front, and I learned an awful lot about people, prices, and pumping gas during those days. If you drove up in your car, I would meet you as soon as the bell rang inside when you ran over that little rubber tube out there, and I would pump you that dollar of gas because that was the most frequently amount that was purchased. Oh yes, gas was about 25 cents a gallon. Some of you might remember that. So I would pump your radical, I know, you would sit in the car, I would pump the gas. As Soon as I finished that, I would come and wash your windshield, both sides, squeaky clean, and then I would raise the hood. I know this sounds rather dramatic to some of you. I would raise the hood on the car, I would check your oil, I would check the water if it weren't too hot, and then I would ask you, and I hoped you would say no, would you like me to check the pressure in your air, airs, check the tire pressure? And some of you would say yes, and I would do that all for a $1 purchase. And I never received a tip that I remember. In fact, we didn't expect a tip. That was just part of the service that you provided during those times. I pumped thousands of gallons of gas during those years. And inside that store, we sold everything that families needed to feed families throughout the community. I remember the prices of every item I marked because every Wednesday the groceries came in and I opened the boxes and put them and stamped them. And you could buy a large box of cornflakes, and I mean a really large box, for 29 cents. Have you priced a box of cereal this week? 29 cents wanting to get you one bowl. And then if you wanted coffee, we had pound of coffee. You could have Maxwell House or Folgers. Those were your choices. No, there were no, oh, and that was 39 cents a pound for a pound of coffee. And coffee was available in two places in town. One was the cafe where they served you a cup of coffee for a dime. Or you could go to your house and put it in a percolator and have your very own at home. Percolate. And oh, oh yes, coffee was an adult drink. Children and, a ch and teenagers did not drink coffee. 
in fact, I remember my Aunt Mary Helen who gave me my very first cup of coffee at her house. My mother never knew. It was three heaping teaspoons of sugar, about a pint of milk, and a little bit of coffee. A, a coffee latte, latte before it's time. I loved it. Now, now why am I telling you this? N not to date myself in the process. Think about it for a moment. Let's just take this coffee thing. All of you of a certain age, if somebody had told you as a young adult that one day, as I did on Friday, that you would pay almost or more than $4 for a cup of coffee, would you have believed them? Yes, I did go to that Starbucks place for that cup of coffee. And if somebody had told you that no matter where you walk, whether you're in an airport, a hospital lobby, a college campus, a grocery store, or any city block in a medium-sized town or large, that there would be coffee shops, gourmet coffee shops, within a stone's throw of every block, would you have believed that? What changed? When and why did coffee become such a precious commodity? Well, it's very simple. The paradigm changed. The paradigm shifted. That's what happened. Changing priorities, changes in culture, changes in habits, changes in taste. And Starbucks and others saw these changes and met the needs. And the rest is history. The paradigm shifted for the U.S. Army this past Friday at Victory Pond as two women received their ranger tabs. A major paradigm shift for the Army and for this world of ours. Paradigm shifts are such a part of all of our lives that we sometimes overlook it. Ninety percent of you have a computer in your home. You probably don't remember the first day it came in there, but that was a paradigm shift. And then all of you have one of those cell phones in your pocket or purse. That was a huge paradigm shift. So Amazon came along and took that computer and that cell phone, and now we're buying 90% of what we buy over the Internet. Another huge paradigm shift. They're such a part of our life that we sometimes missed these shifts. Our paradigms are the structures, the patterns, our way of thinking and doing, our models of making sense. And my world and your world are filled with paradigm shifts every day, and dealing with them can be overwhelming at times. The day you were born was a paradigm shift for your parents, yes, and for you too. It changed everything about their future and about yours. The day your parent died, the day you were married, the day you graduated from high school, the day you received your diagnosis of cancer, the day your spouse died, all of these events change our lives forever. James Loder calls these moments transforming moments, those moments that change every other moment yet to come. And paradigm shifts are both personal and communal. Yes, technology has changed it, and paradigm shifts are most often met with resistance. And why do we meet them with resistance? Because change means stress, and most of us have all the stress we want in our lives on any given day. Can you imagine what a dramatic paradigm shift believing in Jesus Christ was for those first century Christians? Can you imagine somebody believing that this man was the Son of God and you started living that out 
in the first century, particularly for those early Christians in Greece who were part of the Roman Empire. They were changing their worldview in ways that all around them either thought they were crazy or drinking too much ouzo. If you don't know what that is, ask your neighbor. Nothing, nothing we are experiencing can rival what those early Christians in Corinth were experiencing when it comes to paradigm shifts. First century Corinth was one of the most important cities in Greece. It was at that crossroads of culture. It was shaped by the Greek culture for thousands of years. And during the first century when Paul lived there, it was occupied by the Romans and was a major headquarters for the Roman Empire. Walking where Paul walked a few years ago, Judy and I were amazed at how advanced this Corinthian civilization was. You can see a vibrant, diverse, and cosmopolitan city was part of this time when Paul lived there. Into this very unique and diverse Greek and Roman culture, Paul arrived sharing this message of Jesus the Christ, Son of God. He met Aquila and Priscilla, and you remember their names, but you don't perhaps remember what they did. No, that Lydia was the one who did the purple and the dyeing. They were tent makers, and if you remember, Paul was a tent maker. They must have hit it off because he moved in and lived with them for a year and a half there in Corinth. You can read all about it in Acts 18 if you would like to know more about that. But the Corinth during Paul's time was the Las Vegas of Greece. There were, there were temples to Aphrodite. There were temples there to Apollo, to Hera, and many others. And Paul came in probably walking, saying, there is a man who is the Son of God, and he caused, and the Spirit of God opened up the possibilities, and he caused people to believe this, and they established a house church right there in Corinth. He poured his heart, sweat, and love into this church, and these people he loved like no other. I've come to understand why Paul spent so much time there and why this was so important because this was such an important geographical location to spreading the news to the Gentiles that you and I may not be sitting here if Paul had not been successful. He invested heavily in this congregation. Most of his letters written, he wrote more letters to this church than he did to any other. In, in reading his writings to the Corinthians, we can see that doubts, conflicts, disagreements, suspicions, often occurred in this church in Corinth. And like a father or grandfather, he chides, he encourages, he supports, and he loves these new babes in Christ as he teaches them and as he writes these letters. In one of these letters to Paul, and we probably don't have all of his letters, there were probably three or four written, but the one we look at today he is trying to encourage them because of what they've been experiencing. And some have thought about falling away from what they said they believed. I want to read just a portion out of the message from Eugene Peterson's translation. Just a couple of verses that we read earlier. So here's what Paul said to those Corinthians. So we're not giving up. How could we? Even though on the outside it looks like things are falling apart on us, on the inside where God is making new life, not a day goes by without His unfolding grace. These hard times are small potatoes compared to the coming good times, the lavish celebration prepared for us. There's far more here than meets the eye. 
The things we see now are here today, gone tomorrow, but the things we can't see now will last forever. What an encouraging message for those Corinthians in that first century cosmopolitan, metropolitan area. What an encouraging message for us 21st century Christians here in Columbus, Georgia. Paul is very aware that things change, paradigm shift, but changes will occur. But guess what? This is transient, not eternal. There are times in all of our lives when we're convinced that things are falling apart. That's how it looks on the outside. But Paul is sure, and he reminds the Corinthians of their day, and he reminds us of this today, that God is in charge. Yes, God is ultimately in charge, and God is making a new life, a new life in Christ Jesus for each and every one of us. To remember that God is in charge is hard at sometimes, isn't it? Viktor Frankl, an Austrian Jew, was placed in a Nazi concentration camp during World War II. Many around him were tortured and killed. He lost family members, he lost friends people he loved and cherished. He never knew which day might be his last. In the midst of these horrific conditions, his perspective changed, but not as you would expect. He came to believe that the Nazis could take the food, the water, the clothing, and every other requirement that was necessary for for life, but they could not control and take his thoughts unless he gave them that power. Ultimately, he realized they could not take away his will. In later writings, shaped by this experience, he says, when we are no longer to change a situation, we're challenged to change ourselves. When we can no longer change a situation, we're challenged to change ourselves. Paul is challenging these early Corinthians in Corinth to change their perspective, to remember that God Not the world, not the culture, not anyone else is in charge. Paul tells the Corinthians, never give up. Never give up. God is still in charge. His love, His grace, His mercy is sufficient. That, to me, is a tremendous message of hope and encouragement. It's a tremendous message of hope and encouragement to those first century Christians, and I think to us today. I am the product of Depression-era parents. The depression shaped my parents and my grandparents in ways that are hard to describe. One of the ways I know it has shaped me is it's created a philosophy of scarcity in my life. The philosophy of scarcity still shapes my life in ways I don't even know sometimes. My mother in the 60s heard there was going to be a toilet paper shortage. I'm not making this up. I'd gone off to Mercer. Dad had sold the store. And so every time she found toilet paper on sale in the store, she bought it and brought it home. So fast forward to just after her 80th birthday, she and I are in the store. And she sees four packs of toilet paper, buy four, get four free. She says, I need some toilet paper. I said, Mother, you've got, you don't, an 80-year-old woman and an adult son fussing about toilet paper in public is not a pretty sight. It was awful. I said, when we get home, I'm counting how many rolls of toilet paper you have. She said, you can do whatever you want to do. We got home, and 15 or maybe 20 minutes later, I, I went into every room, every closet. I said, Mother, sit down. I want to tell you something. You have 289 rolls of toilet paper in this house. Do you think you're going to use those up before you die? She says, hush, listen to me a minute. 
I am the youngest of five. I grew up on a family farm in southwest Georgia, and we didn't even have an indoor toilet, much less toilet paper. And I swore when I grew up, I would always have toilet paper. I love toilet paper, so leave me alone. Hush. <laughs> a philosophy of scarcity can lead to a theology of scarcity. When we live out of a theology of scarcity, we can be overwhelmed by anxiety and angst. The world can become a dangerous place, and we lose sight of God's presence in the world. Threat and danger lurk around every corner. Will there be enough for me and mine, or will somebody else get it before I do? The scarcity model is the way we're trained to live and, and think, says Richard Rohr. I'm not enough. I do not have enough. This is not enough. Is there enough? The scarcity model is not how we were created to live by God. God's love, grace, and being is abundant. There is enough for each and every one of us because each and every one of us are His only child. The scarcity model is not how we were created by God to live. Paul assures those early Christians and he assures us God is in charge and God is a God of abundance and a God of love. The paradigm shift we must make is one that can change our life and our relationships forever. God is grace and love and that love and grace is sufficient and once we've internalized that, that's enough. God created it, it is good. That means when we say we believe that God is coming to bring about His kingdom here on earth, we believe that He is working to bring about His kingdom here on earth, and we're going to participate in that. And no single period in history, no single event, no single person, nothing is going to stop God from ultimately bringing about His kingdom. How do I know that? Because I know there are going to be crises and crosses and crucifixions, but guess what? God is in charge, and the resurrection is a reality a reality that is the greatest paradigm shift the world has ever seen. And this cross reminds us of that reality this day. So the question for you and the question for me is are we going to live out of a theology of scarcity? Are we going to live out of this theology of abundance? When I pause to reflect on my life, and the times that I've grown the most as a person and have grown closer to God Almighty, it is consistently during those most trying times in my life. When our son David went through his divorce five years ago, it felt like the end of the world to us. All of our dreams and hopes for him and his marriage dashed. What made it even more intense for me is that Thirty years before, I had written a dissertation and, research, and done research on recently divorced men in the church. And I knew what he was about to go through, and I knew what we were going to go through. And I've discovered there's no one in the church anymore not that's not touched by divorce. That is a reality for all of us. And people do not know how to respond to you when you are a family member moves through divorce. If a person dies, we know what to do. When we move through divorce, we don't know what to do. It was a difficult time. And yes, all of us in this room have our own personal, painful family and personal times that we've lived through. Yet in the midst of defeat and disappointment and loss, 
the sandpaper times of life that cause the bleeding and pain, I have discovered that God is at work helping us to become more fully and completely the persons, the congregation, the people that He has created us to be. Nothing that matters is easy. Life can be hard, but I know a reality. God is in the midst of all that we experience, and His abundance is sufficient for all. So how will you live today? Out of anxiety or love? God in Jesus Christ has shifted the paradigm. He's bringing about His kingdom. Will you be that light on a hill reflecting God's love this day, this week, this month, this year? May God help us all to make it so. Amen.